This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we haven't done Q&A in a while, so we're going to go ahead and launch into the fourth version, uh, fourth volume, rather, of the Q&A podcast. And if you'd like to be included in future Q&A podcasts, go ahead and submit your questions to info at undaunted.life. That's our email, info at undaunted.life. Or any of our posts on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, we tend to be a little bit more active on Instagram. Just leave a question there. It doesn't even have to apply to what the post is about, but just leave the question there. We kind of have some people, and we, we make a bank of those questions, and then we pull them out here and there, depending upon what we want to talk about and what's relevant. So let's see what you guys had for this time around. So let's get into the first question. What is included in your EDC? All right. If you don't know what EDC is, that's everyday carry. So uh, yeah, let me go ahead and describe what is on me on most days. So uh, the gun that I carry on me, I carry a six hour P938 nine millimeter. So I uh, carry it with the extended mag in and I have a flush mag that I keep in uh, another place on me. Uh, the ammo that I keep in there is a Winchester PDX one. That's a defender nine millimeter round. It's 124 grain round. It's a hollow point. So that is what I carry on me. Some people might be like, why don't you carry a full size? or anything uh, much bigger. Uh, Most of my clothes are fitted and I wear them in kind of a business context. And so it's a little bit harder to conceal a full size and the uh, P938 really is a super solid gun. So the holster that I carry it in is in the alien gear. It's the cloak tuck 3.0. So I know that there are more cloak tucks out there, but that's the one that I got in. And really it's a fantastic holster. I think it was, you know, part of the algorithm on Facebook made me look at one of their ads or something like that. But Basically, the base of it is all the same, and they change the outer part of it based on whatever your carry gun is. So you tell them what your carry gun is, and then they send that with it. And it's adjustable, and you can you can move some different things around, but it, it really is a solid holster. It seemed to have held up pretty well. Uh, the pocket knife that I normally carry, I have a bunch of different ones I carry, but uh, the one that I carry the most often is my Benchmade Griptilian. So uh, it's the plain-coated blade, so I know some of them have serrated age, uh, edges, but I have the plain-coated blade, and it's 154 centimeter, and it's the one with the olive handle. So um, that was one. At first, I, I didn't really know what I, how I felt about the Griptilian handle. Uh, for whatever reason, it just kind of like felt cheap or something like that. I was like, ah, this is like too much plastic. But I, I couldn't have been more wrong. It's just an incredible blade on that knife. Uh, and it's really, really solid all around. Uh, the watch that I wear normally is a G-Shock Rangeman. Uh, the wallet that I normally carry is a Z-Clip. So I don't even know if those are still around. I'm pretty sure they are. But basically, it's just a minimalist wallet. So it's got a big clip on the outside. And then you have the, the stuff there on the inside. So I hardly ever have cash on me. I usually just have a few cards. Uh, I don't like carry, like if you have like a GNC or a Champ Sports or one of those like membership cards, I don't carry that on me because they can look up just about anything with with your cell phone number. So no need to have this big wallet that gives you like sciatica or something like that. Um, I also on my iPhone, I have a Magpul field field case. It fits really well. Uh, It's protected the phone anytime it's falling out of my pocket or out of the bag or something like that, or if I've dropped it. Um, Now, and then also one thing I do want to add to my everyday carry because that's pretty much all I do with my everyday carry is what I just described. I want to add a tactical pin and basically I'm open to suggestions for ones that you all have seen out there. Uh, one that I've seen in, uh, but it's a buddy of mine's company. It's contingent group. They've got a tactical pin that looks really awesome. I have not had a chance to check that out, but of the ones I've seen, that would probably be the one that I would spend the money on and grab that from them. But if you do have tack pins that, uh, you've used or that you really like, go and hit us up and let us know. All right. Next question. Uh, this one actually came an email from a listener and this actually came this week from a guy named Forrest Burke. <clears throat> and so I'm just going to read the email as it was written and then I'll kind of get into the stuff from there. So with all the coverage in the media and whatnot about what's going on down at the border, I've gotten in a few recent debates about it. I'm for strong border control and immigration entering the United States the correct way at a port of entry. 
The biggest debate has been about the separation of kids from parents. I disagree with doing it. The solution wouldn't be, or the solution would be, don't cross the border illegally. Some of the debate has been, it's not, quote, Christian-like to separate them and that we need to show them the love of Christ and the same Christ, uh, same love that Christ would show them. Just looking for some extra wisdom on the matter. Thank you for all that you do. Love the podcast, and I look forward to them every Thursday. Well, thank you very much uh, for sending this out. We really appreciate any time we get questions, and I'm always down to have a good discussion. Uh, I wanted to go and save this. I, I told him I would just talk about it here on the podcast, but th- there's so much in this issue, right? There, there's even so much in the questions in this email, but it's not really simple and, and cut and dry. And the thing about it is, is we as a, as a country, so let's just talk about the United States. I'm, I'm not going to go over every different aspect of this and give my personal opinion, but let, let's just kind of unpack some of it. So we don't enforce the laws and dictates of the Bible as a country, right? Now, there is a debate that's been had about whether or not we were even founded under Christian principles. I think we very clearly have been. I'll probably do a future podcast episode on that exact subject matter because it's kind of a popular opinion now amongst liberals that we were never founded under Christian principles, which is just kind of silly. But the thing about it is, is we don't enforce the laws and dictates of the Bible as a country. We enforce the laws of the land, or at least we're supposed to, right? So, it's not that as a country, we have to do everything in a Christ-like manner. But in terms of, of the policy that has kind of created this firestorm recently about immigration and just kind of brought it into the general consciousness again, let's just kind of talk about what's actually going on with this policy. Because if you go to the mainstream media, you're not going to be getting the, the right story. Or you'll get it, but it's just like in paragraph 20 of an article or something like that. The, so the thing was, is back in 1997, the Clinton administration they signed something called the Flores Agreement. So this was something where they got together with a bunch of advocates of of immigrants and they they signed this declaration that basically said that a child uh, or an unaccompanied minor who came across the southern border with their illegal immigrant parents, they could not be held in custody for longer than 20 days, right? They couldn't be held in custody together. So if we fast forward to the Obama administration, let's look at 2014, 2015, we had a gigantic wave of migrants that came from uh, Latin America, Central America, and they came across our border with children. And so what the Obama administration decided to do was hold the parents and the kids there together. So, uh, and at the time, even they, they called this a deterrent and which is interesting because you fast forward to today and you have people in the Trump administration, uh, alluding to the fact or saying that it is a deterrent and they're like, Oh my gosh, they're like heartless jerks. It's like, well, they did it during the Obama administration. So you can't have, you know, selective amnesia there. But basically, uh, this was designed to keep people from coming to the U S that was the whole point of this law. But there was a law lawsuit that was filed against that policy, against the policy of keeping children, you know, basically incarcerated with their parents and the ninth circuit court, which is a super, super liberal court. Um, they said that if you arrest the parents, the kids cannot be kept in custody for longer than 20 days. They basically upheld what, what was being decided at that point. So <clears throat> what ended up happening during the Obama administration is Obama basically ignored that. He, igno- he ignored what the court said, and they just didn't arrest anyone. So basically, it was kind of a catch and release. So basically, what it was is they would wait, they would catch you at the border. They wouldn't put you into any type of detention or anything like that. And then they would release you into the population, basically, with a court date. And the they were basically trusting you to show up at court at your appointed time. So we can obviously see the issue inherent here. So we're basically doing the, you know, let's just 
let's just make sure we're all honest and nice. You know, we're going to do the honor system and hope that you come to court. So what ended up happening is about 40% of people that were caught that way didn't show up to court. It was like a miracle. How could that possibly have happened? Now that you fast forward to 2017 and this year, Trump says they're not doing catch and release anymore. Okay. It's a zero tolerance policy that if you are caught coming across the border, that you will be arrested and charged for that. So everyone that comes across the border illegally will be cross prosecuted as an illegal immigrant. Okay. Uh, if you want to apply for asylum, which is something that we obviously will allow people to do, you have to go to a port of entry, right? which is easy enough. Everyone knows where these ports and entries are. Um, but here's the thing is if you try to cross the border where there is no border control and you are caught, you will be charged with a crime because it is a crime. So Trump wasn't separating the parents from kids because he hates Latinos and he hates their kids and he, and he wants them to die and you know, all this extreme stuff. It was the law on the books and he did something crazy and decided to actually enforce that law. Okay. So, but, but here's the thing is I'm not necessarily saying it's a good law. I mean, the idea of separating parents from their kids like that seems seems crazy. Now, that's just on its face. When you get into some of the individual um, uh, circumstances that we've seen at the border, it might be a good idea to separate these parents from their children, considering what some of these parents are doing. But that's not really what we want to do. We don't want to go on the fringe. We want to just go from uh, the normal 30,000 foot view that that's probably not a good thing to do overall. Um, Trump signed an executive order basically saying that they weren't going to uh, separate the children from the parents anymore. But if you look at the executive order, the language in it's pretty weak. Uh, it's actually super weak. It doesn't really change much of anything. So it's, we're still kind of in the, okay, we're either going to catch and release them in the population or we're going to separate them thing. It's, it's just kind of weird. Um, but the thing is guys, is many of the images that we're seeing coming out on Twitter or in the news, a lot of these images were actually from the Obama administration. So the, the media was interestingly very silent during that time about that. But these images are not just from today. They're from four and five years ago in some cases. So, uh, but there's kind of that main image uh, that's been making the rounds. It's that little girl that was allegedly being separated from her mother at the border. Um, if you know what I'm talking about, it's basically made the rounds on Facebook. So you see all these people, you know, basically signaling uh, how great they are that they're giving to this cause on Facebook to basically re reunite families with their children. And they use this picture of this little girl that's basically looking up at her mom being arrested by this evil ICE agent, right? Um, but there's some very interesting things about that is that little girl is from Honduras and she was never actually separated from her mother. Yeah. Uh, you know, Time Magazine puts this little girl on a cover, a big red cover with her looking up at Donald Trump and he's just looking down at her smiling and it says, welcome to America, right? So, so it was just basically, this little girl was never separated from her mother. Her mother was trying to cross into the United States illegally and her mother is not a heroine. Her mother uh, actually abandoned three other of her kids back in Honduras, uh, to basically try and get across the border illegally. So that's not an indictment on what's going on in Honduras versus what the opportunities would be like in the United States. But when we look at it like that, it's just like, man, we're getting all this crazy amount of information and most of it's not being vetted. And you certainly aren't going to see time magazine. They already came out and said, they're not going to run a retraction. They're not going to say, Oh, I'm so sorry. We, we depicted Donald Trump in a, in a negative light. There's no way they would ever do that. But you, you know, let's, Let's just kind of get into my personal opinion on some of this stuff. Um, and, and this is just, I'm just going to kind of free flow just some of my 
basic opinions on this and just see if we can keep it from being too overtly political. But but basically, if you don't have borders, you don't have a country, like that's just a geographical thing. So I live in the state of Oklahoma. The reason I know that I live in the state of Oklahoma and not Texas or Kansas or Arkansas or Missouri or something like that is because we have a border. Now, we don't have walls around that border, but th- there is a border, okay? Um, a lot of kind of open border people they all tend to lock their doors at night, <laughs> which is pretty interesting. And open border politicians, people that want open borders, these are people that live in gated neighborhoods with walls, <laughs> right? And they have some of them even have armed guards at the gates and different things like that. So um, <clears throat> the thing about this whole debate is people often conflate immigration with illegal immigration, right? So immigration on one side and illegal immigration on the other. Um, I, I think it's, it's kind of crazy to give a front of the line treatment to someone that is kind of snuck in the back door. That, that doesn't really make sense to me. And when, when people are like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, obviously I'm talking about whenever someone has basically been in the system for years trying to get their citizenship and they did it the right way and they let the government know who they are, where they are, what they're, what they're trying to do. And then someone just kind of waltzes across the border. Um, and then, you know, ends up in our system that way and we're supposed to take care of them it it's kind of a weird thing to me like if you were at a restaurant let's say it's a new swanky restaurant and and you've you t- you know gotten in line and you want to take your wife to this great restaurant and it's going to be like a 90 minute wait and you're waiting there and you're waiting and you know you're making your way through the line and maybe it's about 30 minutes in or so and then you just see somebody with his wife walking through the back door and sit down at an empty table wouldn't that make you kind of angry like just on a basic standpoint, it's just like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Like this is third grade stuff. Like, dude, you just cut in line. Like you can't do that. Um, also, I'm not a huge fan of the lottery system. I don't know if any of you are very familiar with that, but if you're here on a visa of some kind, like a work visa or a student visa, basically the chances of you staying in this country are based completely on a lottery, right? I actually have a lot of friends that, that I worked with at a former job. They were uh, software developers over in India and you know, you only get so many chances in this lottery before they send you back to your country. And these are incredible guys that work incredibly hard and they're going to make really good money and they're going to make companies better and everything you could possibly want in an American. But we have a lottery system. So Joe Schmo idiot could end up staying and someone who could be a future doctor or CEO of a company is being sent back to their country. So, um, you know, I, in my opinion, I think we should be able to pick who comes and stays in this country. I think the lottery system is broken. It's ridiculous. Uh, DACA, there's obviously a lot to talk about there. Um, you know, it's just a crazy situation that these kids are going through. You know, they were walked across a border whenever they were too young to even walk or talk in most situations. And now they're here. And the only thing they know is, is America. And you know, that's, that's such a weird thing. I've talked to some, some people that are DACA recipients. I've talked to people that were illegal uh, immigrants and had illegal immigrants in their families. Just wanted to hear about their situation from their point of view. Cause obviously I, I can't share that point of view cause I've never lived it. Um, but one, one argument that I've heard on DACA that I think is incredibly interesting is let's say your parents uh, embezzled money. So let, let's just make up this whole scenario. They embezzled money using their company and they embezzled $10 million. And right before they were caught, they put the $10 million in your bank account. But then they get caught, they get arrested. Here's the question. Do you get to keep the money? Like your parents are the ones that broke the law. You weren't the one that broke the law. And they just basically gave you all the benefits of them breaking the law. Do you get to keep the money? In that scenario, it's pretty obvious. It's a pretty obvious binary of no, you wouldn't. But, you know, with immigration, it's like, well, do you just get to stay here? 
And, and that's the thing is, I, I don't know. I go back and forth on that one because there's way too much humanity involved there, right? Um, also, here's the thing, like a physical border, like a wall, it's obviously a deterrent. Like if you have someone that, you know, can just like walk across the border, that's obviously way different than if they're trying to scale a 20, 30 foot wall that's got barbed wire and it goes way down deep under the, uh, under the surface of the earth. And you know, whatever the thing is, it's just kind of, that's going to be a deterrent, but you know, a wall is only as good as its ability to not be penetrated. I mean, if you can get through the wall or over the wall or under the wall pretty easily, then it's just, it's just a physical barrier. You know what I mean? Um, now, and then there's some other things just kind of thinking of some other opinions that I might have. Um, are there Republicans or conservatives that don't want immigrants here because they're racist, because they hate brown people and they, and they think that they're, you know, an inferior race? Sure. I, I'm sure that there are some morons, some dorks out there like that. But that's the overwhelming minority of people that actually think that, right? Overwhelming minority. Now, a lot of Democrats, they obviously want blanket amnesty and they want open borders because then all of the migrants, the illegal immigrants would uh, overwhelmingly vote for them, right? So if you just open up the border at the South, you got rid of ICE, which a lot of people have been calling for this week. Let's just get rid of ICE. Let's get rid of border control. And people could just come in. Those people overwhelmingly vote for Democrats. And Democrats, it would almost be impossible for them to lose future elections. Like that would that would be an incredibly difficult thing for them to do. Um, you know, some other things. To say that all illegal immigrants are bad is absurd. I've heard some people try to say that. I mean, it's just, it's just really, really a stupid argument. But also at the same time to say that none of them are bad is also absurd and it just flies in the face of reality. I mean, a, a recent statistic that was released is the illegal immigrant population in the United States is somewhere around three and a half percent of the U S population, but they commit about 37% of the murders. Like just think about that. They 3.5% of the population is committing almost 40% of the murders in this country. A lot of that you'll, you'll see comes from groups like MS 13, which is probably one of the most violent uh, gangs on the planet earth of any kind. Um, there were even reports that are coming out from guys that are actually on the border who, you know, about half of which are, are Latino men. So just throwing that out there, but these ice agents, they're actually catching people that are coming across the border that are from the middle East. So these are individuals that are coming over here. They've got multiple passports. They've got weapons. They've got currency like from five or six different countries. And they're just kind of walking across the border solo. So when people are thinking that there might be some sort of a terrorist element here from Middle Eastern groups that can't really get us, you know, New York City flying to a building style, but maybe the lone wolf style. That's not that crazy. But and again, I'm kind of getting off subject. And I've spent a lot of time on this just because I wanted to make sure I answered the question fully for this individual. But to go back to his original question, which is just basically like, you know, how do we operate as a Christian? You know, why don't we just be more Christ-like with these individuals? This is kind of where I would like to summarize what we're talking about here. We do not, again, I'll go back to the very beginning whenever I started talking about this, like we do not base what we do in this country law-wise off of what the Bible says we should do. And I've seen a lot of people on both sides of this argument, people that are pro-illegal immigration, people that are anti-illegal immigration, you know, pro this, anti that. I've seen them use scripture incorrectly. They're giving no context. And so what I was going to do is I was going to provide some contextual scripture for you, but at the same time, it would, it would cause me to go so far down the rabbit hole for you that I don't know that it would be necessarily helpful because again, there's really nothing in the Bible that talks specifically about this subject matter, right? You know, the word is a lamp unto our feet. It's not a floodlight. And so it doesn't really answer everything for us. We can kind of get context clues. So 
I can just say I haven't heard any compelling arguments that people have given using a scriptural basis for why we should or shouldn't do things a certain way as a country. But what we can say is that Jesus was someone that basically was standing up for obeying by the law of the land. And if there is a law of the land right now, whether you agree with it or that you don't, you should want it to be enforced. Because when we start picking and choosing the things that we want enforced, it's really going to hurt us as a country overall. And I hate that an administration can do that. Um, you know, you go from a blue administration to a red administration, and then all of a sudden laws are being ignored or laws are being just thrown by the wayside or laws are being like stringently f- followed. I think that's a recipe for disaster. So this is what I would say to the Christian that is in this debate. Our call is to love people, right? John 13, 34, 35. Like we've got to love people and we need to be defined by how we love people. So if you run across an illegal immigrant, is it your job to call ICE and report them? Think, think about what love requires of you at that situation. This person's a violent felon. I know what I would do, but I'm not you. And we, we look at things a little bit differently. But again, we should be able to accept people. We should be able to help individuals. But again, we are not a country that runs everything based off of Christianity, based off the dictates of Jesus's life and ministry. It's just not something that we do. So I, I know this answer was a little bit all over the place because I kind of just free flowed with, with my ideas and my opinions on certain things. And this is probably the, the longest I've ever spent on a single question on a Q&A podcast. But hopefully that's just a sufficient primer for you. Um, when, you're, when you're sitting across from somebody that disagrees with you, remember that they have the Imago Day. They have the image of God written on them. They have a soul. So even if they're making ridiculous arguments, they're not making sense. It's not your job to point out how stupid they are. But if they are quoting mistruths, it is your job, if you know the truth, to tell them what that is, to help them understand. But the thing is, is you have to go into a conversation with the goal of being able to shake shake hands and leave as friends, even if you still disagree with one another at the end of it, okay? So again, long answer to a relatively short question, but hopefully that's a little bit helpful. Let's go into the next question. My wife and I are done having kids and we had all girls. I'm struggling with knowing that my family name won't get passed on and that I have no boys to lead to manhood. How do I get past these thoughts? Okay, that, that's, a, that's a pretty tough one. So uh, just again, I, I'm a guy who I don't have any kids yet. So Lord willing, uh, my wife and I will be able to do that someday. Uh, I am super rooting for a boy. You know, uh, it's kind of one of those things. We're not going to be able to have a gender reveal party with a bunch of friends because if it's a boy, I'm going to lose my mind and rip my clothes off and start running around the neighborhood. But if it's a girl... I'm going to have to like go out in the woods for a day or two and just like think and like prepare my head to have to worry about every single other penis on the planet as opposed to worrying about a boy and a singular penis. You know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of like in my head, it's going to be really, really tough to do. And so, but the thing is, is I have a lot of friends actually that only have girls. So they had two or three kids. It was all girls and they're like, that's it. And that's all. And they weren't really concerned about having to raise a man or, you know, having their name passed on. And guys, this is not incredibly rare. There are family names that die all the time. I mean, people that can't have kids, don't have kids, only have girls. You know, they don't have boys to kind of pass on the name in the traditional sense. Um, in terms of the thoughts that are in your head, uh, the thing that I would encourage the, the guy who, who sent this question in is that God gave you those daughters. Those daughters are a gift. Again, coming from a guy who's not a parent, but those daughters are a gift. And you can lead them uniquely into a a pathway of Christ-centered womanhood. 
you, you know, is it going to be the same as, you know, teaching a boy how to throw a fastball or, you know, taking him on a hike? No, it's not going to be the same. It's going to be a very different type of a thing, but you still have a tremendous calling on your life to love your wife and to teach your daughters how someone should love them. So when I think about men having daughters, that's like the tippy top. Aside from showing them who Christ is and what his love is like, you love your wife in a way that is so extreme that when they have some numb nut in high school, that's when, hey, what's up, girl? You want to go out? You want to, you know, that stupid crap? They're going to be like, dude, you're gross. Go away. Because they're going to instinctively think, I need to find a man like, you know, that treats me like my dad has treated my mom. I think that's one of the most incredible things that you can do as a dad. But here's the other thing I would say as I wrap up this question is just because you don't have a son that is your blood does not mean that you can't lead boys to manhood. I mean, just think about that. There, there are plenty of men's groups, you know, not, not no longer the Boy Scouts for obvious reasons, but there are plenty of men's groups that are through ministries and outside of ministries where boys need help. There are gigantic swaths of the population. I think I talked about this on, on a past podcast. The fatherlessness epidemic is, is unbelievable. It's gone up exponentially in the white community. I think about 50% of Hispanic uh, boy or boys and girls are born into households where dad's not around. Three and four black kids are born in a household where dad's not around. There's plenty of opportunity to lead boys to manhood. Like take a boy under your wing. There's plenty of legal ways and, and ways through ministries and through nonprofits where you can help boys, okay? And you have the power of Google at your fingertips, on your computer, on your phone whatever you need to do, talk to people about it. There's plenty of opportunities to do that. So if that's the void that you're feeling and you need to fill that void somehow, there's plenty of ways to do that. All right, next question. Who slash what comes to mind when you hear the word successful? Okay, so when I first saw this, you know, I kind of had my knee-jerk reaction. So in terms of who, my knee-jerk reaction was, you know, guys like Michael Jordan or Warren Buffett or Nick Saban or or someone that you're just like, man, they just, these people are crushing it and they've crushed it for so long. Um, And in terms of like what, you know, the what part of it, the knee jerk reaction was, you know, money, lots and lots of money. All those guys have lots of money. They've got the big houses. They've got the cars. They've got the trophies they, they've uh, presented to big groups and everyone's just kind of slobbering over how great they are and all that. But then I started to reflect a little bit more and got to think a little bit more about, about different things. And I started to think about people in my own life in terms of what success means. And someone that came to mind is a mentor of mine that I've had for over a decade. His name's Dr. Dwight Adams. So this is a guy that that's from Edmond, Oklahoma, the town that, that I live in now. He's, you know, like an OG from Edmond, you know, when, whenever this town used to be like two or three streets wide, you know, that's whenever he grew up. But this is a guy who ended up uh, being the director of the crime laboratory in Langley, Virginia for the FBI, you know, worked under several different administrations. Uh, he was the very first scientist to testify using DNA evidence. Like, so think about every single court case on the planet earth, whether it's rape or murder or terrorism or something like that, there's always DNA evidence. He was the first scientist to ever actually testify using that. So he's like world famous dude. He's like the most humble guy ever. Like he is so unbelievably humble. The only reason I know all these things that I just said about this guy is because someone else told me, or I read it in a bio. He's never talked about him. He's actually very sheepish about his accomplishments. Um, And here's the other thing that I think about when I think about successful in terms of the what. I think, you know, if you have a spouse that loves you and adores you and respects you and you have kids that do the same, and if you have like an active ongoing discipleship with Jesus, like, man, that would be really successful. And again, in my life, that's Dr. Dwight Adams. This is a guy that just 
absolutely does that. Like he has the adoration of his spouse. They've been married for decades and decades and just you can still see how she looks at him. She's totally completely in love with him. Uh, his kids have a deep level of respect for him. Like he's definitely the patriarch of the family. I've seen him, you know, basically uh, coordinate this big family reunion with people from all over the country. And he was the center point the entire time, even though he's the most humble, unassuming guy that you would think. Uh, or, you know, that you would know. Right. And so for him, he's obviously had a very big, robust discipleship with Jesus. And, and he's constantly kept that a, a center point of his life. And so, again, when I think about successful, the thing that your mind automatically goes to is what you would typically think. And that's the money and the adoration and maybe the women or whatever the thing is that you're basing it off of. But it's those guys in your life that are just solid to the core and maybe no one knows them outside of your small community or outside of your church or something like that. And maybe they're super well known, but it's, it's the people that are really, really solid through and through. All right, let's go into the next question. With regards to freedom of speech, how can we as Christians become better informed about not only our constitutional rights, but where our boundaries are biblically? So that's a really good question. It's got a lot of different things you can talk about there, but uh, it's such an American question, right? Because if you think about it, like we're the only country that has free freedom of speech. So when you think about that, we're also spoiled by it, but this is something that people literally would and have died for other places. So super American question, but but I definitely dig it. So I guess if, if you want to know, be better informed about your constitutional rights, well, first of all, read the constitution. That's kind of your duh. You know, read commentaries on the constitution, because sometimes when you're reading the constitution in that older English language, it's a little bit hard to decipher what they're talking about. Um, but also read decisions uh, that are written by, you know, uh, originalist and textualist su- Supreme Court judges. That's that's a good way to kind of get into the minutia of what's happening in the constitution. So I would read decisions on different court cases by, you know, Antonin Scalia, Neil Gorsuch, Clarence Thomas. I mean, and those, those types of guys would be considered originalist or textualist. So I would check that out. And in terms of understanding what our boundaries are biblically, obviously the second duh is read the Bible, uh, read commentaries on the Bible, listen to sermons uh, from pastors that take the inerrancy of the Bible seriously. But the thing about freedom of speech is you really have to look at it in three ways. When I was thinking through uh, how to answer this question, it was like, how do we use it? How do we understand it? And how should we categorize it? Right. And so how we use free speech, uh, scripture I came across was Proverbs 31, eight, nine. And it's this, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. So if you're using your free speech to say how much you hate the coach of the other team, that's not your team probably a waste, probably a waste of your time, right? But if you're standing up for the rights of people, right? So for instance, if you're the guy on Twitter, on Instagram, that's always sharing things about abortion because you really, really care about the the lives of the unborn children that are being slaughtered every single day, I think that's a pretty good use of your free speech, right? So that's just the kind of thing about how you use your free speech, but then how to understand your free speech. I came across another uh, scripture in Proverbs. And this is Proverbs twelve eighteen, And it says this, there is one whose rash words are like sword. Th- <laughs> we'll start over. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing, right? A little bit of a tongue twister there, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So that is the understanding of what you are capable of when you use your free speech. That if you're really harsh with your words, it can literally be like you're stabbing somebody, right? So just when you think about that, you have a responsibility whenever you open your mouth. And then even beyond that, 
the things that you say could bring wisdom to people. It can heal people. It can help people. So there are moments when I think you should absolutely use your freedom of speech and kind of figure out where you sit in the cosmos and, and how you should best utilize what you're able to put out there. But then the last thing we should look at is how to categorize free speech used against you, right? So let, so those other two were, you know, you using the free speech, but how should you categorize free speech that used against you? Okay. So let's look at first Peter four, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God is upon you. So just think about that. The times that you have been beaten down, someone that has used their willingness to give free, free speech to attack you, to attack your Christianity, to attack your discipleship with Jesus. You are blessed in that moment. Again, I talk about this all the time. Someone putting a snarky comment on your Facebook post about scripture or something like that is not really that bad. It's just not. We have people getting their heads chopped off in Northern Africa because they follow Jesus Christ. So again, that is not, these are not equal in any way, shape or form. It may seem like that because when that's the worst thing that's happened to you all day, you haven't had to walk seven miles to get your water or have to worry about getting eaten by a lion or something like that on the way. That's probably not, not the, the, the hardest thing that you've had to deal with. But if, if people are just being nasty to you online or they're, they're bullying you via text or at school or something like that, you may think that, man, I'm really running into it right now. This is, this is really, really tough. I just want you to think in those moments, regardless of what's going on in your life, that you are blessed. So if someone's using their free speech against you and they're trying to beat you down with it, it's okay. You'll be all right. So let's move on to number six, sixth question of the day. I read your 21 day men's devotional on you version multiple times, and I've gotten a lot out of it every time I've taken it on. Do you plan on writing another one at any time soon? If so, when? <laughs> okay. Well, Hey, first of all, thank you so much for doing that. Uh, that has actually done really, really well. That men's devotional, I think just last week it eclipsed the 40,000 completions mark. So thank you so much to everybody that's read that, shared it around the people that have read it multiple times. I mean, when I first submitted it, I didn't think 40 <laughs> people would read it. And here we are 40,000 deep. Um, here's the thing. I, I will probably write one, uh, again at some point. Um, but at this point I would say the odds are better that I would actually write a full on book than writing another devotional. So obviously writing a book versus writing a devotional, it's much, it's a much different undertaking, but it took me a while to write that 21 day devotional. And, you know, it, it took a lot of effort. Um, you know, I, again, I didn't think that many people were going to read it. So I didn't like, you know, it didn't take me like three years to write it or something like that, but it did take quite a bit of time. But yeah, the odds are probably better that I would write an entire book about the philosophy of undaunted life and our philosophy on manhood and how those things manifest than writing another devotional. But in the meantime, I, I know a lot of guys that have read the devotional multiple times and kind of like watching a movie for a second time, you get something out of it a little bit different. There's something else that you noticed. We also have a five day marriage devotional. It's called an undaunted marriage. So if you go to the Version Bible app and you go to plans, or if you go to Bible.com and look at it there, just search undaunted. And it's, it's going to be the only two that pop up is the 21 day and the five day. And so there's one that I'm thinking about this year that I may try to write with my wife. It's called undaunted wife. And so, cause I'm running into some ladies that their guys are kind of, they're down with the concepts of undaunted life and they don't really know how to take it. You know, their husband's working on their spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, and they're making some changes and it's a little bit intimidating. They don't quite know how to support. Uh, they don't quite know if they should support. And so, uh, that's kind of a working idea I'm running over with my wife right now. So we'll see if that comes out later. All right, let's move on to the next question. 
I know you're a big UFC slash MMA fan. So several questions. Oh, okay. looks like he's got a bunch of different questions here. So uh, this is the ones he's asking me. Okay. Who is the greatest fighter of all time? Who is your favorite fighter of all time? Who is your least favorite fighter of all time? What is the greatest fight of all time? What is your, your favorite fight of all time? And what is your favorite moment in MMA history? Okay. These are going to be fun to answer. Okay. So, all right. So the first question is who is the greatest fighter of all time? So I have to look at this in two different ways. Okay. Because I think there is a clear answer to this, but it's not cut and dry. So, okay. I thought about this. This is how weird my my brain is. I thought about this multiple times. So let's say it's like old school days, like back, like when all the Greek different city states were fighting each other. Sometimes they would have the entire army to attack the entire army. But there were other times whenever each army would send their greatest warrior, their champion, and each army's champion would fight each other and the winning champion, his side would win, right? So basically one person died as opposed to hundreds or thousands, right? So I've thought in my brain multiple times, if that's how it worked for the United States and we go to war with Russia or something like that, and we got to pick one dude to win a bare knuckle fight to save all of American life, the person I'm picking is John Bones Jones. That's who I'm going with. So if I need one human to win one fight, John Jones is the baddest dude on the planet. He, he technically is undefeated. Like he has a loss, quote unquote, loss to Matt Hamill. But, you know, he threw a 12-6 elbow, which is an illegal strike. But he was destroying Matt Hamill. That, that, so he's basically an undefeated fighter. Um, he has one no contest that came from his second fight against Daniel Cormier. But, but here's the thing with, with John Jones is he's got a lot of crap on his record, right? Uh, and I don't mean his fighting record. I mean his personal record. He's got DUIs. He's got hit and runs. He did a hit and run on a pregnant woman. Uh, you know, cocaine, he popped, uh, for steroids twice, you know, the, but here's the thing is both times his, his reasons for why he popped were completely plausible. And, you know, this is a guy that has abused cocaine. And if you know anything about the process of cocaine, sometimes cocaine is cut with other substances and those other substances, uh, can be things that were made in factories in like China where they'll, they'll do one vat of, you know, whey protein. And then the next vat will be some sort of anabolic steroid. And then the vat after that is, you know, uh, a whey protein again, but they don't ever clean the vat. And so you're going to get trace amounts of something that would cause you to get a positive test in, you know, whey protein. And if, and if he did cocaine, then, you know, he sucked it up his nose and he got a little bit of a trace amount of anabolics in there anyway. But so when you just look at who's got to win one fight, John Jones is the greatest fighter of all time. It's not even close, but when you take all things into consideration, So what they've done inside the octagon, the impressiveness of that and everything they did outside of that, I think George St. Pierre is the greatest fighter of all time. So he only has two losses. He avenged both of those, Matt Hughes and Matt Sarah. And when he avenged them, he avenged them very, very violently. Um, This is a guy who dominated the 170 pound division for an incredibly long period of time. This is a guy that cleaned out the division pretty much twice. They were running out of people to to get him to fight. Uh, and this was during the steroid era. And there was never, never really a time, this you know, pre-USADA, where there, there was any even thought that George St. Pierre would be one of those people that would be abusing anabolics. And he was so outspoken about being against that. But he's just such an incredible guy. 
inside and outside the octagon. He takes, you know, years off. I think it ended up being like three or four years and he comes back and he fights at 185. I know he fought Michael Bisming, but again, he, you know, he came back and he looked almost better than before he left after taking such a huge time off. So again, kind of a, kind of a hard way to answer that question, but you know, got to have one guy win one fight. It's going to be John Jones, but you know, greatest all time fighter, all things considered George St. Pierre. Next question is who is your favorite fighter of all time? So I kind of have my top three. So number three is Forrest Griffin. Um, I always loved watching him. I remember watching that first Ultimate Fighter finale where him and Stefan Bonner basically made the UFC what it is today. Got all these eyeballs attached to it. This was a guy uh, who just, he didn't have superior talent, but he had supreme will. Like, this this was a guy that, you know, was really, really nervous until the moment he got punched in the face and he's like, oh, okay, I'm in a fight. This is really, really cool. You know, he, he wrote a book called Got Fight, which is on our 100 books, uh, Every Modern Christian Man Should Read list. He's an incredibly funny guy. Uh, you know, when he beat Shogun Hua, that was an incredible thing. This is Shogun coming over from Pride, you know, a huge big time champion and Forrest Griffin beats him. You know, when he beat Rampage Jackson for the title, like I remember being so nervous sitting there at Buffalo Wild Wings trying to figure things out. And, you know, so I really liked watching him. My second favorite fighter, is George St. Pierre. So this is just a guy who is so good at so many different things. And, you know, his training is very, very different. You know, he's going to try to train at something that you're better than him at. And he's going to try to beat you at that thing. You know, he does gymnastics just so his body can move better. He's just a supreme athlete. And this is a guy that was bullied mercilessly growing up. And he, you know, he ended up changing and getting better and then learning how to fight. And so great, great guy. But again, my, my favorite fighter of all time, it's just got to be Conor McGregor. And yes, I know some people are like, oh, how can you support a guy that, you know, does this and does that? Dude, I've been paying attention to what he's been doing. The stuff he's been saying and that, you know, that fiasco in Brooklyn where he threw the dolly at the bus and busted all those things and potentially could have hurt some fighters seriously. It's some of the dumbest crap I've ever seen. It's so abhorrently stupid. But here's the thing. We're talking about my favorite fighter of all time. My favorite guy who likes to get in a cage and punch other dudes in the face. And at the end of the day, there is one fighter that if he's fighting on Saturday, it's stop the presses, screech to a halt. I'm buying that and I'm watching it even if it's by myself. And that's Conor McGregor. I don't do that for George St. Pierre, as great as he is. I don't do that for John Jones, as great as he is. I don't do that for, you know, Max Holloway or for Frankie Edgar or anybody else. I don't do that for those guys. I do it for Conor McGregor. He's my favorite fighter of all time. Who's my least favorite fighter of all time? This is an easy one. Anderson Silva. I cannot stand that guy. Do not like Anderson Silva. So here's the thing about Anderson Silva is I'm not a hater. Everyone's like, oh, you're just hating because he's so good. No, no, no. He has an impressive track record of the guys he's beaten that he's beaten brutally. But the thing about Anderson Silva is there were so many fights and the Damian Maya one is the one that comes to mind the most where he was so superior to the person on the other side of the octagon from him that he could have destroyed them quickly, but he would just toy with them. He would just kind of dance around and, you know, do all this different stuff to try and taunt them. And it was so annoying to me that somebody would do that. That you could be so talented, and instead of just going in there and taking care of business, you're going to go in there and dance like a moron? I mean, whenever he lost to Chris Weidman the first time, that was one of the greatest moments that, that I've ever witnessed because it was it was what he had been doing his entire career, the, the taunting and the pretending, and then he got caught and he got knocked out. So, yeah, least favorite fighter of all time. Couldn't stand the guy. Not a huge fan of Michael Bisbing either. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of other different fighters that I'm not a huge fan of, but yeah, Anderson Silva, definitely my least favorite fighter ever. In my Okay, the greatest fight of all time. In my opinion, the greatest fight of all time is John Jones versus Alexander Gustafson. So that was UFC 165. 
Um, this is a fight that should have been rematched quickly, but then, you know, lots of different things happen, mainly John Jones being a moron. But that is the greatest fight that I've ever watched because it's two guys that are so supremely equally matched with one another. This is the first time in John Jones's career where he couldn't just, you know, little brother some dude and keep him way out at distance cuz Gustafson's the same size as he is. And here's the other thing about that fight. I've gone back and watched that fight multiple times. So if you don't know who won John Jones won that fight, uh he won it by unanimous decision. Uh there was one fight I think it was uh, it was 48-47 and then the other two cards were 49-46. When I've watched that fight, I remember watching it live and I remember rewatching. I think Alexander Gustafson won that fight. I think he won the first three rounds. I think John Jones very, very clearly won the last two rounds, but I think Gustafson easily won those first three. I just don't see a scenario where John Jones won those first three rounds. So Gustafson should have left with the belt that night, but he didn't. But again, great, great fight. I think it's the greatest fight of all time. Okay, the next question was, what is your favorite fight of all time? So my favorite fight of all time is Robbie Lawler versus Rory McDonald. So this was UFC 189. If you're trying to figure out which one that was, that was the one where Conor McGregor won the interim belt. Uh, This was the fight before that fight. So he beat Chad Mendez for the interim belt. Um, But this fight was so unbelievably brutal. These guys were just absolutely pummeled. Both of them were. Robbie Lawler had a huge cut on his lip. Rory McDonald's nose was broken so bad he had to take a a tremendous amount of time off after this fight. You know, if you know how it ended, Robbie Lawler ends up stopping uh, Rory McDonald in the fifth round by just a horrible, horrible shot to the nose. But the thing about this fight that makes it my favorite fight to watch is because after the end of the fourth round, so this is a bloody war. It's after the fourth round, you know, going into the fifth, it's tied two to two. Whoever wins the fifth round wins the fight. And it's gone back and forth. Both guys have been rocked. But the bell sounds at the end of the fourth round. And these guys just stand in the middle of the octagon and stare at one another. They're both completely bloody. I mean, they've got 60 seconds in between rounds. They've got to go back and get on the stool and get worked on. And they just basically stand there and look at each other like, I can't believe you're still standing here. One of the coolest moments I've ever ever witnessed. So, um, But now that kind of segues into my, my last question here from this guy is, what is your favorite moment in MMA history? So my favorite moment in MMA history is when Conor McGregor knocked out Jose Aldo in 13 seconds. So all we ever heard about was Jose Aldo and oh, he hasn't lost a fight in 10 years and he's the greatest this ever and greatest that ever. And he fought in the WEC and, you know, he was basically anointed the UFC champion. And, you know, he pulls out of their first fight with an injury, you know, a rib injury, you know, under kind of crazy circumstances or whatever. But Connor basically spent the better part of two years torturing Jose Aldo just getting in his head, needling him at press conferences and those different things. And Jose Aldo is, he, you know, he's an aggressive fighter, but he's like an aggressive fighter in reverse. He's not normally coming forward. He's just destroying everything that you're trying to do. He's an incredibly talented fighter. But 13 seconds into that fight, Conor McGregor knocks him out with a left hand and then follows it up with, with a little bit of a hammer fist there on the ground and knocks him out cold. But the reason why this is my favorite moment in MMA history is not because I watched it live and I lost my mind and, you know, did all those different things. It is because what he did in the fight where he basically was real light on his front foot and and going back and forth and then hitting that left hand shot, that straight left hand shot as he's going backwards, he trained that right before the fight. Like you see him warming up for the fight and he does the exact thing. 
So it was like he knew it was coming. He knew that Jose wanting to just kill Connor for all the things he had said and done over the last, you know, two years, that Jose was just going to come firing in. And wouldn't you know it, 13 seconds into the fight, that's exactly what Jose Aldo does. He comes running in, and Connor just steps back, hits him with that straight left, lights out, boom, boom. So. Yeah, man, I, I love watching mixed martial arts. It's it's one of my favorite things to watch. So, uh, but yeah, really cool to answer all those questions. Next question, I love to watch the UFC. Am I saved? <laughs> okay, so all right, so I guess I should have seen that one coming. Okay, here's the thing with the UFC, right? Because I know some people, I, I don't really know many of them personally, that uh, they they don't watch the UFC because you know it's celebrating violence and it's anti-Christian and this is just kind of what they believe. But it's a sport, okay? The UFC, mixed martial arts is a sport. All right. So whether you watch Bellator or, you know, Ryzen or whatever you watch, it's a sport. And it's much like any other contact sport, right? So think rugby, think football, think anything else. But here's the thing that I think that you should worry about here. If you're about to watch a sport of some kind, like a contact sport, a violent sport, especially fighting is, are you watching it with a gospel centered heart? Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Are you watching a fight between two fighters? And are you watching it because you want to watch two extremely skilled martial arts athletes compete against one another? Or are you watching it because you want to see blood and you're hoping someone gets hurt, right? And I don't mean like not KO'd, but like hurt. You want to see someone really get hurt. So the thing is, is if you're wanting to watch it for the sport of it, there, I don't think there's any problem with that whatsoever. But if you're watching it because you really want to see some guy get hurt, I think there's some there's some major issues uh, with your understanding of the gospel and whether or not the the Holy Spirit is actually working within your heart. Okay, so easiest easiest way to answer that one. Next question: How does one mitigate the perfectionist nature to all areas of one's endeavors? There is an opportunity cost to all pursuits, and at what point does one's pursuit of excellence in all areas degrade the ability to gain success in all other areas? I think that's a fantastic question. Really, really good question. So here's the thing is I'm a perfectionist in a lot of ways, but not in a bunch of areas that don't matter. So, I mean, let's go back to the goal setting episode. I think that was episode three of this podcast. All goals, in my opinion, should be stretch goals and worth it goals. And if you want to know what I mean by that, go back and listen to that podcast. It's a quick one. But all of your goals should be things that would cause you to stretch yourself out. And also those those goals should be worth it. And that's cyclical, right? Because if a goal is worth it, it's going to stretch you. And if you're being stretched by a goal, it's probably worth it, right? It just kind of goes in that nature. But, you know, you kind of have to look at this through the prism of how it affects your discipleship with Jesus. And, And then also, I would say your relationship with your wife and the parenting of your children. So, and again, I'm going to pick it on again. I pretty much do every week. If getting better at fantasy football does not make you a better disciple of Christ, a better husband or a better father, do not spend a whole lot of time on that. I'm not saying don't do it. All right. So plug in anything. If it's, if it's Fortnite, if it's, you know, church league softball, if it's, you know, whatever the thing is that you're into or, you know, practicing an instrument, whatever it is, if it's not helping you be a better disciple of Christ, a better husband or a better father, Perhaps perfectionism is not the greatest thing that you you should use. That should not be your standard for that thing, I guess. Because there is an opportunity cost. I love how you worded that in the question. There is an opportunity cost to all pursuits. And so what are you giving up to try and learn, you know, the the solo from Inner Sandman? Now you are you know, I, I know a guy, you know, I love this guy, but he spent an unbelievable amount of time trying to get the fast part of the Eminem song Rap God memorized. Because there's like one part of the song where he just goes like unbelievably fast. He spent a lot of time memorizing that. And I was like, this dude's married with a kid and has a job. 
It's like, dude, that's a lot of time spent on something pretty stupid, like something that you're going to like recite at a party sometime. So just, just think about it. Like if it's not helping you be better in those really, really important areas, should you give perfectionism? Should you give that much effort? Because here's the thing, guys, in a lot of ways, you've heard some people say things like this. It's like, get something about 85 to 90% ready and just send it out the door. I mean, that's what I did with this podcast. The first one that I recorded, I recorded it thinking I would release it in three or four weeks. And I ended up releasing it that day. I'm like, ah, you know, let's just see how this goes. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if this is going to sound good. I don't know if people are going to like it, but let's just kind of throw it out there. I got it 80 to 85 to 90% of the way there. And it's like, you know, let's just see if people like it. People ended up liking it. Next question. I know that you love baseball and mixed martial arts, but if you could only watch one sport for the rest of your life and it couldn't be either of those, what would it be and why? Okay. So yes, I, the majority of what I watch is baseball and mixed martial arts, but this is actually a really easy one. If I could only watch one sport and it couldn't be one of those, it would be college football. So uh, I like the NBA. I'm a big Thunder fan. Uh, I like watching uh, some international soccer. You know, I like watching rugby, you know, different things like that. Not a huge fan of the NFL, but college football is so much fun to watch. And the, the cool thing is, is I don't live and die with any team. I mean, I live in Oklahoma, but I didn't go to OU and I didn't go to Oklahoma State. And so it's kind of weird to me that people that didn't go to those colleges, they like literally lose their minds when their team, when that team wins or loses. It's just kind of weird to me, but that's just personal preference. But, you know, I don't really live and die with any team. I just want to watch good games. And that's the thing with college football is like every single Saturday, there's like two or three games that you just cannot miss. And I remember when I used to watch the NFL a lot, it was like, I feel like I would go, you know, two or three weeks without there being even one game that you couldn't miss. Like, it'd be like, oh, okay, there's finally a Sunday night game worth watching. But, you know, for the most part, all the other games were just pretty boring. But that's the thing with college football is it's just, it's incredible watching uh, the things that this, these kids can do. It's, it's fun watching their traditions of what's happening in the stands and all those different things. But yeah, that's a lot of fun to watch. Next question. How do you know when you become a man? Okay. I think the first thing is, and you know, we obviously have talked about this a lot is when you're initiated into it, something that we as Americans don't do very well. We don't initiate boys into manhood very well, but then also, I guess I would say this to a young man. It's whenever you fully understand and have taken on the, the challenge of what our mantra here at Undaunted Life is for manhood and our definition of manhood. And that's a, a guy that cultivates spiritual, mental, and physical resilience daily. Because I, I, I think if you're a seven-year-old, you're not really going to understand that. Now, I think you should talk to a seven-year-old boy about what that means to be spiritually, mentally, and physically resilient. But you got to kind of be of, of a certain age to where you're like, okay, I understand that fully. I can wrap my head around it and I'm going to do it. So that's kind of the difference there. And so that, but the really is when you know that you become a man, I don't think it's the first time you have sex. I don't think it's whenever you turn 18. I don't think it's when you get your driver's license. I don't think it's when you move out. It's contextual to the guy. So for me, I, I kind of matured a little bit earlier. Uh, whereas I felt like I, I still had some friends that took them three or four years before they stopped making really, really stupid decisions. But some people, they mature a little earlier. They mature a little later. Some guys, you know, they, they lose their father or they lose their mother or something at a young age and they kind of have to grow up really, really early. You know, it, it just changes for each individual guy. But yeah, if you kind of embrace uh, our model of manhood, I think that that's a, that's a good way to kind of look at that. Next question. Christian masculinity is toxic and breeds rape culture and abused women. Thoughts? Okay, so I think this the core of this question is about toxic masculinity and um, 
You know what? Actually, I'm going to save uh, my answer on this question for a future podcast. So uh, I've had a lot of people ask me to talk about toxic masculinity because that's like the favorite phrase you see thrown around by people. A lot of third wave feminists talking about it. A lot of people that are hyper liberal talk about, you know, toxic masculinity. So I'm going to do like an epic podcast someday, you know, hopefully soon about toxic masculinity. So, you know, there's been some podcasts that I've done that I've spent a lot of time on. So like the abortion one, the, the one about guns and the reality of evil, uh, pussies in the pew. Those are episodes that I spent a lot of time making sure that my philosophy on things were sound and that I could present it in a way that would be palatable for most guys. Uh, I think toxic masculinity might be that next one that I'll take on because I want to give a full accounting of kind of what people have heard, what people have said why they're saying it, where that comes from, whether it's real or not, you know, spoiler alert, it's not, but you know, just basically kind of lay that out there and look at it even through the prism of the gospel and how that works. Next question. How do we make a Christ-centered life appealing to the rough manly men of the world? So that's a great question. I think the first of all is you have to model it to them. All right. You know, you have to invite them into that, a Christ-centered life, because I talk about this all the time. For a lot of manly men, they walk into church and they feel like, all right, well, considering what I'm seeing around me right now, I have two options. One, I can be a Christian, or two, I can be a man. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying that's what they think. And so we're losing people. People are, you know, not coming to church. They're not, you know, more importantly, coming to Christ because they look at some of his followers and they're like, God, these guys are such pansies. I don't want to be anywhere near these dudes. But the thing is, is we have to create environments that speak to these guys and then actually speak to them. So we've heard a lot about these kind of more new, new age churches, you know, the churches that are, you know, less traditional and things like that. And they, they've created the environments for men, but then they don't speak to them. So you have a man that is attracted to an environment. They, they walk into a building and it's like exposed beams and, and, and wood and metal. And, you know, it's just like it's more inviting to them. And then they go in and sit down and basically the pastor's just talking to the chicks. It's like, dude, speak to them. They're here. Like those are the guys that are going to go home and, and work the gospel out within their family. Speak to them. And here's the thing is you have to appeal to our definition of manhood. And I'm talking about Undaunted Life here. Again, I'll bring it up. It's a guy that cultivates spiritual, mental, and physical resilience daily. But the thing is, is when making a Christ-centered life appealing to a rough and tumble manly man, the most important thing is you have to talk about the Lion of Judah with the Lamb of God. I talk about this all the time, all the time, all the time. You have to talk about both. And the thing is, is you get the privilege of being able to focus on the Lion of Judah because no one else does. Like every church, every podcast, everything you're looking at, it's all this, it's just Lamb of God. And I'm not saying the Lamb of God's not important. I'll say it a billion times more. He's incredibly important. But when you look at Jesus as only the Lamb of God, you are getting an incomplete view of who this guy is. You have to go to the Lamb of the Lion of Judah. The Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah is the same thing. They're 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 interwoven into the same person of Jesus. Okay, and we have to make that clear. All right, next question: If you had a blank check to create a startup company, what type of company would you start? Okay, that's kind of an interesting one. That's kind of got me on my heels a little bit. Um, I guess. You know, the easy question would be just pouring all that money into a a ministry like Undaunted. But um, I think what I would probably do is, you know, since I'm just kind of off the top of my head here, I would probably start a men's ministry consulting firm. That kind of sounds cool, doesn't it? So, okay, Uh, you would like basically go to churches that don't have men's ministries that are robust and thriving, which is essentially all of them. And you would basically try to help these churches establish 
full-on men's ministries and things that would allow men to be attracted to that church, to stay there, and also to have a tremendous impact within the church, then within their families, and then within the overall community. So I think most churches don't have the foggiest idea how to do that. I mean, I talk about all the time you have these churches where they have a men's ministry pastor, quote unquote, but that's the like seventh title on this person's title is that they also do men's ministry, which essentially means they throw a men's event once or twice a year and call it good, which is not men's ministry. That's event planning. And so that's probably what I would do, to, to be honest. If I had a blank check to just start a startup company, I'm not trying to invent Snuggy 2.0. I'm not trying to you know be on Shark Tank. I'd probably do something like that because I think the impact that I could have uh, in the United States, uh, in the American church, and for the kingdom of God would be tremendous. All right, next question. What are your thoughts on anabolic steroid use with professional athletes and just regular dudes? Okay, uh, here's my thing about anabolic steroids. I think you should stay away from them entirely. Um, I think the, the, um, the health concerns are very clear about what anabolic steroid abuse does to you, uh, about what it, uh, does to your heart, what it does to your brain, what it does to your body overall, how it makes you susceptible to cancer, tearing tendons, all those different things. Though, if you don't know about those things, you should. Um, but the thing in terms of professional athletes, I, I think it's one of the worst thing you can do is cheat in your sport. I think it's one of the worst things that you can do. And so again, my favorite sports are mixed martial arts and baseball. You know, before USADA came into the UFC, these dudes were ripped out of their minds. I mean, look at Alistair Overeem, look at uh, Vitor Belfort before USADA, and then look at him after. Look at a guy like Johnny Hendricks. This guy doesn't miss, miss weight his entire life as a wrestler or as a UFC fighter, and then all of a sudden USADA comes in, the dude can't make weight anymore. And so, and again, there's not evidence. I'm not, you know, Johnny Hendricks fans out there, don't tweet me, don't at me because I called your boy out. But there's so many of these guys that were abusing steroids. And then you go into baseball. Mark McGuire, the guy who stole my childhood from me, basically by lying and stealing and cheating. Sammy Sosa, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Andy Pettit, Rafael Palmero, like all, all these guys that cheated. I think that's so unbelievably terrible because I just think about the guys. And I know a lot of my friends are like, I don't give a crap. Let them take whatever they want. You know, we're watching for entertainment purposes anyway. But what if you're the dude that's just a really, really good baseball player and you're unwilling to risk your life and your health and your safety and, you know, leave your, your wife without a husband, your kids without a father because you don't want to take these steroids. But then all the other guys are doing it, right? And so you're just as talented. You, you may get more playing time or a better contract than these guys, but you're left between a rock and a hard place of, well, if I take these steroids, I'll probably die, um, but I'll probably be able to get a bigger contract, or I don't take it, and I may get cut in double A, right? You know, it's just kind of one of those things. So uh, I'm, I'm very vehemently against uh, those anabolic performance enhancers. Cause I got some friends that are kind of pithy from time to time. They're like, well, uh, you're so concerned about performance enhancers, but you don't have any problem with guys wearing glasses or contact lenses or good cleats. And I was like, okay, if you break down performance enhancer, that phrase, if you break that down, literally, yes, someone wearing eye black is a performance enhancer. Someone having a good cutsman in their corner, that's an enhancer. Right. If you have a team that has, you know, good microphone system in the in the player's helmet, so the quarterback can hear the plays easier, that is a performance enhancer. Those things enhance the performance, but those things are legal, and everyone can do them. So if any guy in Major League Baseball has eye issues, every all of them can wear contacts. Every single one of them can do it. But not every pitcher can put pine tar on the inside of their gloves so they can get a better grip on the baseball. That's illegal. So if it's an illegal performance enhancer, no, it should not be used. And the thing about it is, is, is I'm realistic. I know that in a lot of these sports, the, um, the guys making the steroids are, they're so far ahead of the tests that in a lot of sports, 
guys are still cheating. Like the idea that people aren't still cheating in baseball is ridiculous. There are obviously guys that get popped every year. Guys get popped all the time uh, within mixed martial arts and, you know, HGH and football and different things like that. But in terms of the regular dude, I would just ask somebody that wants to take anabolic steroids, what are you doing that for? Do you need anabolic steroids to have physical resilience? Or is it just because you want to look better in a t-shirt? You want your tribal armband to be popping out of your, you know, your biceps underneath your, your short sleeve t-shirt. You know, you want your traps to be up near your, your earlobes or whatever. Is that really helping you be healthy overall? Like that's the thing I would tell these people and I'm not hating on power lifters. I do it myself, but like these guys that just want to be jacked out of their minds, gigantic. I just wonder why it's like for, for you, it's not about health at that point. It's about vanity. You just want to look like a giant. You want people to walk by you and be like, oh gosh, I don't want to mess with that guy. Like, that's the reason why you're doing it. Like, so look at your heart, look at, look at your brain, see what you're trying to do. Like, why would you do that? I don't see a use outside of the realm of, you know, medical doctor prescribing it to you for anabolic steroid use of any kind. Don't see it. All right, guys, last question here. The World Cup is going on right now. Yes, it is. But the U.S. is not in it, sadly. With that, are you still watching? Are you rooting for another country? And who do you think is going to win? Okay, so yeah, I'm super disappointed the United States did not make it, uh, especially since they got eliminated from World Cup, uh, you know, qualifying basically by losing to Trinidad and Tobago, which is ridiculous. Um, I am not watching that much. I mean, I'll catch a little bit here and there. Uh, Most of the games are on in the morning, so I'm not really able to catch them. Um, In terms of a country I'm rooting for, I'm rooting for Iceland. Because, you know, my motherland of Ireland's not in it. As far as I know, Choctaw Indians do not have a team in the World Cup, so I can't root for them. So, uh, but my jujitsu nickname is Viking, so I figured I'd go with Iceland. And they have the coolest uh, chant that they do before and after their games. But as it sits right now, if you're as of the recording of this podcast, it doesn't look great that Iceland is going to be moving on past uh, the group stage. So hopefully that changes, because uh, they've they played two matches, and hopefully something goes better in that last match and they get a W. But... We'll just kind of have to see. But in terms of who I think is going to win, I did predictions before the entire World Cup, and I put down Germany as uh, I thought that they were going to repeat as World Cup champions. So they have not looked great. Um, It looks better for them getting through to the round of 16. But uh, again, you know, that was who I picked before the tournament. If I'm looking at the teams right now, the teams that look the best, I mean, Spain and Portugal look pretty fantastic. I mean, I don't really believe that Russia or England are going to continue to do well, but you know, we'll see. Uh, as as it gets, you know, some of the other countries kind of weeded out there, I'll probably pay a little bit more attention and watch some of the bigger games, you know, once it gets down to the, you know, quarterfinals and semifinals, that kind of thing, but that's kind of all I'm going to right now. All right, guys, let's do a quick resilience boost before I let you guys out of here. As you know, by now, we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. And specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So today we're going to do spiritual, mental, and physical. Okay. And so you can use this in a bunch of different ways. So I'm actually going to do something I haven't done before. I'm going to refer an album to you. So, uh, the band impending doom just released, uh, their latest album. It's called the sin and doom volume two. And so the reason why this is, uh, (laughs) spiritual, mental, and physical is because this is a legitimate, uh, Christian metal band. And, uh, there's a lot of bands that claim to be Christian that are just basically collecting checks from churches to do concerts as opposed to bars. I'm sure we'll talk about that more later, but these guys are are legitimate gospel-centered Christians um, from the mental side. Uh, great lyrical content. Um, it's an incredibly aggressive style. 
So if you're used to Hillsong and then you go to Impending Doom, it's going to scare you a little bit. Phys uh, fair warning. But this is one of those things for physical resilience. If you put this on while you're working out or while you're rolling or something like that, it's pretty substantial what, what it can do to you. I know whenever I listen to Impending Doom and bands like it, uh, it's pretty pretty crazy what you can end up doing with your body at those times. But just give it a chance. Like Give this band a chance because uh, you may not be able to get past the aggressive music and surely the aggressive vocals. But <clears throat> when I think about worship music, uh, my brain does not automatically go to Hillsong or Bethel Music or Phil Wickham or Shane Shane, and, and I like some of those, uh, some of the things that those those people do. But it goes to bands like Impending Doom and like For Today and, and things like that, because there's a lyric in a song on the new record, and the song is called Devil's Den, and the lyric is this: it's a short one, but it says, "I stand at the gates of your hell and bring the power of Almighty God." So, it's just a very aggressive thing. Because here's the thing about Satan: Satan owns nothing. He's a, he's a squatter, I guess would be the way I've heard someone say that before. Like Satan's a squatter. Demons are squatters. They own nothing. They own no real estate. They only own as much area as you give them to operate. And so I like songs that sing about the glory and the strength and power of God. But I also like songs where we talk about how aggressive we can be towards Satan because he is worthless. And as Christians, we have the power of Christ behind us to be able to take on someone, you know, in the entity of Satan or his minions and his demons. And we can do those things. And so I don't get fired up to fight in the spiritual realm when I'm listening to Carrie Job. Not hating on Carrie Job doesn't get me fired up the same way. But when you listen to a band like this, it definitely gets you going. So thank you guys for listening. And as always with these Q&A podcasts, if you have questions for us, please shoot them over to us at info at undaunted.life. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen as well. Share this on social media using the hashtag undauntedlife. We'll be sure to find it and give it a like. If we deserve a five-star review, please leave one for us. And if you're leaving five-star reviews, if you will leave a five-star review and write a review, that will send us way up there in terms of how people are going to be able to find this. So I know it's kind of easy to go in there, just click five star, but click five star and just leave a few sentence review. That would be a huge help to us. I'm booking speaking engagement currently for the remainder of 2018 and the beginning of 2019. If you'd like me to come to speak to your church, to your conference, to your team, to your business, just hit me up at info at undaunted.life, info at undaunted.life. Our website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Undaunted Life and Facebook.com backslash Undaunted Life. You can check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.